Caesarea Philippi is also known for Banyas, a collection of springs, and pagan worship sites linked to the cult of Pan. Pan, also called the goat god, was the Greco-Roman god of nature, livestock, and hunting. All things related to wild times, party music, and of course, fertility. Pan was the crazy-looking guy with the hindquarters, legs, and horns of a goat. The centerpiece of this ancient worship site is this huge cliff and grotto containing the remains of numerous altars, caves, temples, and courtyards. This whole area was teeming with Roman mythology and idolatry. It was right here where Jesus, nearing the end of his ministry, asked his disciples one profound question. Who do you say that I am? I had an opportunity to visit here in Caesarea Philippi twice in the last couple of years. It's amazing that Jesus would bring his disciples here to introduce the foundation of the church. There's a giant cave here set up to worship the god Hades. In fact, was, this was known as the gateway to the underworld or the gates of hell. Also known as the Plutonium because the Roman name for Hades was Pluto. And it was here that temples were set up an incredibly pagan ritual to worship the god of Pan, where we get the idea of Pan-ick and Pandemonium, as well as Hades. And Jesus brings some Jewish boys from the Sea of Galilee up north to this pagan worship center to introduce them to the most important question any of us will ever answer. Who do men say I am? And today, we're going to find that Jesus, of all the weird places to have this conversation, he has it behind enemy lines. He, he takes his disciples to enemy territory to say, we need to, to wrestle with some questions in a place known for never denying yourself pleasure, never denying yourself comfort. In fact, here at the Grotto of Pan, they would place the the image of, of Pan right here in this little section and the people would come up and bow down before it in this giant you know, ritualistic orgy that happened there. And Jesus in this location is going to push his disciples like a personal trainer pushes you to get the best out of you, pushes you to be healthier, pushes you to get the very best that you can be. That's what Jesus is going to do in these next couple chapters. Have you ever had a trainer? Maybe you are a trainer, been pushed by a trainer. A couple years ago, we decided to start a DVD series called Insanity. Well named, well named. It guarantees to turn your sweat glands into a faucet. It's disgusting. I never knew in two minutes I could sweat so much. And, and the guy who leads it's name is Sean T. And the whole time he's like, push it, push it, just five more minutes, just six more hours, you can do it, you can do it, in your core, I love it, I love it, I love it. I hate Sean T. <laughs> hate that man, hate him. He didn't care, he was on video, he didn't care. He also didn't care because he wasn't there to be liked. He was there to push us to the extreme. And as many times that God will feel like, now what are you doing in my life, you just keep pushing. Because he's trying to not... Just have us love him, but to develop us, to train us. I've had one of those weeks like that. 
You know, Beth's had some back issue, issues, as many of you know, for the last six months. But the last three weeks, it was like we're coming out of it, back to normal, it's all good. And four days ago, with no real reason we can't figure out yet, it was all back to 12-level pain and totally incapacitated for four days. Really? Really? Just when we're finally out of a season, the chaos comes back? God, I don't really like this very much. Well, I'm trying to push you, to develop you, to grow you. So Jesus brings his disciples to train them and push them to Caesarea Philippi. And he says, guys, huddle up. If anyone, anyone, desires to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. Making it about you, needing all the credit, demanding your rights. You've got to deny yourself. Well, that sounds hard enough. Then, take up your cross. Cross? And do it every day. Then, come and follow me. If anyone desires to come after me, let him... Deny himself, unlike what you're seeing in this culture. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And we're going to see two disciple actions here. And Jesus will then lay out why you should endure. Why you should persevere. Why you should live a totally different way of thinking about life. Because the benefits are out of this world. The benefits you enjoy now and later. And the pain you avoid now and later. Jesus will lay out why it's worth taking this step into discipleship. So two actions to disciples. The first one is that every disciple needs to understand and wrestle with who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So Jesus says, it happened. He was alone praying. His disciples joined him at Caesarea Philippi. He asked them saying, guys, huddle up, huddle up, take a knee. Question, who do the crowds say I am? Andrew maybe said, well, Some people are whispering John the Baptist. Some people said, you're Elijah. Another one of the disciples said, no, no, some people are saying you're like one of the old um, prophets uh, risen from the dead. She's saying, okay. But who do you say I am? Peter can feel it. The energy's building. You're the Christ of God! Jesus sternly warned them and commanded them not to tell anyone. Why? Because the disciples were wrestling with who he is, the Christ. But they didn't yet have a proper understanding of what the Christ would do. And Jesus didn't want the message getting out about who he is if they had not yet connected to what he's come to do. I have a friend who's a Jewish, and he said, you know, one of the reasons I don't believe in Jesus is, number one, Judaism is a monotheistic religion. There's one God, and you can give it whatever title you want. You're trying to add another God. Jesus is God, and God is God, and then Holy Spirit's God. We reject Christianity because you're polygamist. You believe in more than one God. Two, the Christ clearly is laid out in the Old Testament to bring a king and a reign in And Jesus did not bring and usher in the kingdom. And that's why Christians invented the second coming. Because you know he didn't fulfill what needed to be fulfilled. So you sort of passed the buck to some future doctrine. 
I thought that was actually a very reasonable explanation why someone today might reject Jesus, but also why the, the Jews in Jesus' day had a very similar understanding and why they didn't hear what Jesus was talking about. Which is why Jesus goes on here and explains not only who he is, the Christ, but what does the Christ come to do? So Peter answered, the Christ of God, the, the anointed one is what Christ means. And he strictly warned, even commanded them to tell no one, saying, you need to know what the Christ is about because your leaders have not got it right. Then he says, the son of man, which is a weird, it's his favorite nickname for himself. Just love nicknames. Peter, you're the rock. But his nickname for himself was the son of man. Now Jesus picks this phrase very intentionally. So let's see what he says, then we're going to figure out why he uses this phrase. The Son of Man must suffer. Ugh, that sounds terrible. Not just suffer, but suffer many things. Oh, and then after he suffered many things, he's going to be rejected by all the elders and chief priests and scribes. All the power brokers, you think he's going to put into power to take over the Romans, he's going to be rejected by all those. And the Son of Man is going to be killed. Well, this is getting worse. But he will be raised on the third day. And this was totally foreign idea. Well, let's talk about that phrase. The Messiah, Jesus says, it's me. But you know my nickname for myself? The Son of Man. Wink, wink, elbow, elbow. That phrase is a really clear, distinct nickname of a very clear vision given by Daniel in the book of Daniel. So you may know Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel had a lot of dreams. And one of his dreams is the vision of the Ancient of Days. This incredible vision of God who's shown as the, the Father God as the Ancient of Days. And Daniel is looking up at this vision. It says, I was watching in the night skies. Behold, in the night skies in the heavens, one like the Son of Man was up there with the Ancient of Days. And he was coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And so he's looking up at the cloud here. And he's looking up, and he's like, all right, there's the Ancient of Days, and then there's another person with him. And they're both from heaven, but one of them's not like an angel. He's almost like human. So he's... He's God, but he's not God because he's with God. He's like the God-man. He's like a son of man. And yet he comes with the clouds onto heaven. And as he gets to heaven, he doesn't come and say, Hey, I'm from God. Serve me. He comes from the clouds. Instead, gets on a knee and says, I've come to serve, not to be served. Even to die for a traitor race. And Jesus' nickname for himself pointed back to a vision of Daniel that showed there might be more to God than what you think. There's a God-man part of our Heavenly Father. Now, every disciple needs to wrestle with who is Jesus and what does the Messiah come to do? This week, we were interviewing a friend of mine, Ted Lawrence, who uh, has been coming to our church forever and ever and we're interviewing him for a future series. As I was talking to him, he said, you know, Chad, do you know why I was an atheist for 38 years? I said, no. He said, because something happened when I was nine and I was so angry at God. What happened? 
He said, I grew up um, in religion, grew up in Catholicism, and my dad would take me to confession. I'd go into confession, and everybody's waiting outside, and, and I would whisper through to the, to the priest, yeah, it's been so-and-so since I've, I've had my last confession, and I need absolution. And he'd say, all right, what'd you do? He said, and I asked the priest when I was nine, if I'm really sorry for what I've done, like really repentant in my heart, won't God forgive me without needing you to tell me I'm forgiven? Without going through this process? And the priest said to him, no, you leave here today without my absolution. You're going straight to hell. I said, well, I don't understand why you're an atheist for 38 years. Why you're angry for so long. He said, but then a friend from Horizon befriended me for many, many years, and I saw something in his life I hadn't seen some anyone else. And he invited me to a mayor's prayer breakfast. I got to hear somebody present Jesus the Messiah, not religion, for the first time in my life. I called him up afterwards and said, hey, I'm now a brother in Christ. And she had this last year, he said, has been the most joyful year of my life. And if you know Tad, he's got pancreatic cancer, and it looks like he's aged 40 years in the last two years. He said, the opportunities, I have agnostic friends coming into my room, seeing the joy I have in the midst of pancreatic cancer, and they're asking me, why have you come, how do you have this joy? And I tell them about the prophecies in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled them. How can you have joy in the midst of a death sentence like pancreatic cancer, but that you know who Jesus is and what he's come to do? Which is why it wasn't just Daniel's prophecy, but Isaiah's prophecy too. That said, he's not just the son of man, he's the man of sorrows. That the Messiah is the servant of God. And he would come and he would, he wouldn't be what you think. He would be a man of sorrows. He would be acquainted with grief. Smitten or beaten by God. Afflicted. He was wounded for our transgression and bruised for our iniquities. One of the reasons we are so passionate about going through the Bible, and one of the reasons we started our church, is it's just so often anymore, people don't get to hear about Jesus, and they don't get to hear about his real message. They sort of hear a, a version of it, there's Jesus in there, it's a lot of religion, it's a lot of try harder, it's a lot of go through the hoops. So one of the reasons we are so committed at all of our services, exploring and equipping, is because we all have tads in our life, or we've been the tad who somebody befriended us and brought us along. And now we're in a circumstance where God's calling us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, even if it's a cross of cancer, daily, and glorify Him that others would come to know Jesus in our circumstances. That's why we're here. Discipleship is following Him in whatever circumstance He's given us and glorifying Him there. And when you serve here at our church, you are serving so people can know and discover the Bible and Jesus in a way they haven't heard before. When you give to our church, you're giving so people can learn about Jesus and the power of the gospel. And most Christians, they know how to accept Jesus in a prayer 20 years ago, but they don't have to live out the gospel. And the second action of a disciple is so profound, this can transform your entire Christian experience. Disciples need to wrestle with who he is and what he does, but also they need to realize that his cross motivates my cross. 
His cross, what he does for me, is what motivates me to deny myself, to to live a life of sacrifice, to suffer joyfully, to give of myself selflessly. Jesus, right after describing what a Messiah does, he suffers, he dies for people who traitors to him, and then he's risen from the dead. He says to them after that, so anyone who desires to come after me, notice the word after, you look at my example, then responding from what I've done from you is what you do. Let you then, in response to what I'm going to do, deny yourself, take up your cross as a response to my cross, do it daily, crucifying self, crucifying the old man, crucifying the flesh, crucifying your desire to be number one. And then follow, another after type word, you look at what I did, and then you follow after that. Now this is so critical, because if you don't get these two things in order, you will have a type of Christianity that has no power And there's a Catholic version of this, there's a Protestant version of this, there's a Baptist version of this, there's a Presbyterian version of this. So the issue is not the label. You can have whatever label you want. But if you don't understand justification as a motivation for sanctification, you've robbed yourself of the engine of the gospel. Let me show you. Justification is a theological idea that you are justified before God Not based on what you do, but based on what he did for you. So this is what you might call being a real Christian. A real Christian knows that the righteousness comes from God, not from themselves. A real Christian is somebody who is fully forgiven, fully loved, based on what Jesus did. They know they're going to heaven, but they know God is with them right now and accepts them right now. And that justification provides the engine for your sanctification. I want to obey because of what he did for me. I want to join God in his work because he's already working in me and lives in me. I want to do unto others based on what he's done unto me. And if you're having trouble in some area of your sanctification, the goal is not to try harder. That'll work for about a week. The goal if you want the engine to love better, be more patient, is to look deeper into your justification. You have trouble saying, I can't forgive myself. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. You need to go back to the cross. Watch Jesus beaten. And ask yourself, was he or was he not beaten enough? Or do you need to beat yourself up because his beating was... Not quite adequate. And you learn to forgive yourself by seeing that he's already forgiven you. You struggle with being generous. You could work harder at being generous. But what you really need is to go back to your justification. Do you really believe that you're an heir, a joint heir to Christ? That your heavenly father, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, has made you a joint heir. And you have treasure in heaven reserved that moth and rust can never touch. Do you really know that? Do you really believe that? Has that captured your heart? When it has, you're like, oh, well now I'm just managing funny money with Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and some Franklins on it. I want to be a good manager of it, but it no longer stresses or controls me because my justification, my real treasures, motivate my sanctification. But if you get these out of order, you'll totally miss the power of the gospel. And that's when my sanctification proves I'm really justified. 
And there's, again, there's a religious version of this. There's a Lordship Salvation version of this. Francis Chan's a big fan of this. And, and, and here's how the sermon goes on that. It sounds something like this. Come on, if you're really a Christian, there's no such thing as Christians who don't love God or struggle with sin. You really got to do it. You really got to pray harder. Go, 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 go. And you go, oh my goodness, I'm, maybe I'm not a real Christian. And you feel the guilt and you feel the shame. And you sort of get your willpower wheeled up for a few days. And oh, and you collapse. Because you're trying to prove you're a real Christian. Your sanctification is your motivation. Your effort becomes the motivation to prove you really made it. That prayer really counted. And it's never going to warm your heart. It's never going to drop an engine into your life. The way you grow as a Christian is through the gospel. The gospel is not the ABCs. It's the A to Z of your growth. You deny yourself because look what he did when he denied himself and came from heaven to earth for me. I'm going to take up my cross daily because of the cross he endured for me. I want to follow him. I'm going to be patient to people who don't deserve my patience because look how patient he was with me. Your justification always drives your sanctification. So here is the gospel. In essence, you are born, you're going to one day die. Here is you being 0% righteous, 25% righteous, 50% righteous, 75 and 100. So after you're born, you got some good days and some bad days, some good days and some bad days. Went to church, didn't go to church for a while. Oh, I was kind to somebody. Oh, I lost my temper. And then someday you're going to die. And you can, on your best day, God says your righteousness is like filthy rags. But if there comes a day in your life that you accept Jesus to be your justifier, not your own righteousness, in that moment, Jesus' righteousness gets deposited into your account, and you are at that moment 100% righteous, past, present, and future. It all gets deposited to your account. So much so, you're like, no, that, that that can't be true. No, it is true. In fact, if you've never heard the message of Jesus and you went, that's so ridiculous, that's so shocking, it's too good to be true, then you're finally hearing the message of the Bible. 100% righteousness goes to your account. And now, the, the way you start growing as a Christian is you go, wow, look how much he accepted me, loves me, and lives in me. Now I need the fruit of your spirit to start living out of me. I need more of your fruit. And I'm not getting proud about the fruit because it's not my fruit anyway. And I'm not devastated the days that, 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 that I don't do well because it reminds me that he covered it anyway. And I grow. And I still die woefully inadequate in my own efforts. But his justification begins to flow and grow me toward Jesus. That's how you grow as a Christian. You deeply reflect on and look deeply into the gospel. And that is why churches all around the world miss the incredible good news that you can be fully justified by Jesus because of his death and persecution and beating on the cross. And Jesus says, so the reason I'm calling you to some difficult things, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, is because I want you to live the kind of life that I've already lived for you. And he says, here's some benefits. Here's why you should do it. Number one, there's some present benefits. What profit is it to a man... If he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost. 
to which if your instincts like mine, because you heard Billy Graham speak on this one time, you went, oh, okay, so we're talking about heaven and hell now. No, 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 I don't think we are. He's talking to his disciples, some of which are believers right now. He's talking to believers about how this message of him dying on the cross saves their soul. So don't insert goes to heaven. Let's figure out what saves your soul means. So Luke says he himself is destroyed or lost. He's talking present tense. Matthew uses a little bit different phrase. What profit is a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So yourself, you are your soul. So what's a soul? Let's talk about that for a second. God made us in his image, so human beings are body, soul, and spirit. So we're three in one. We have a body that's dying. We have a soul that's dying, composed of our emotions, our will, and our, our thoughts. Our thoughts, our emotions, and our wants. Then we have a spirit that's dead. And many people confuse the spirit from the soul. So when you become a follower of Jesus... The Holy Spirit, Jesus' Spirit, comes and lives in you. And your dead spirit is no longer dead. You are now made alive in Christ. You are a new creature in Christ. There is a new person. A deposit of righteousness, 100%, is a guaranteed of heaven to come. But growing as a Christian means taking that engine of Jesus living in you and beginning to let him save your soul. Deliver your soul from emotions that aren't true. I gotta defend myself. I, I can't, I can't hear that feedback because, because, because I gotta defend myself and protect my ego. No, no, I don't need to protect my ego anymore. My ego didn't get me anywhere. Jesus had to die for my ego. God, help me to think about this situation in light of your grace. I'm probably wrong here. When you feel like God is punishing you, you look at the cross and you go, wait, God doesn't hate me. No matter what I felt, no matter what people said about me, God doesn't hate me. Look at the cross and I start to feel God's affection toward me. I start to renew my mind, part of my soul. I begin to renew my mind and take thoughts captive. And my present day benefits of the gospel is I become more like Jesus in my thinking, in my feeling, in my wanting. I come to a moment that I want something I used to need that wasn't God. And I say, God, I'm going to trust, based on what you did for me, that you know what's better for me than I know. And I'm going to, by faith, trust your wants. God, help me to want what you want. Help me to remember, I don't even know how to want correctly. And that's the present day benefits of understanding the gospel is you begin to transform and then one day you die and God's new spirit resurrects your body as well. We had a baptism service last weekend. At that baptism service, one of my favorite stories was a woman being baptized by her friend. She said, if you had known my friend years ago, you would not see her in this baptism pool. And two... She is a totally different person today than she was two years ago. Because of what she's begun to understand about Jesus. She was being trans sanctified, transformed in her thinking and her feeling and her wanting. Where she used to be very self-centered, she's becoming more and more selfless. Because of the benefits of the gospel. But then Jesus goes on and talks about the future benefits and losses. But whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. And this is why a lot of people, based on that soul verse and this next verse, think we're talking about heaven. Oh yeah, yeah, if, you don't, if you're ever ashamed of Jesus on earth, then you're not going to get into heaven because Jesus is going to lock the door and say, I'm ashamed of you. I don't think so, and I'm going to tell you why in a second. 
But there's definitely a loss, right? You don't want Jesus ashamed of you. But what does it mean to be ashamed? Does that mean heaven or hell? Well, first, he's, he's moved to future tense. He moved from soul present tense to, I think, future tense, because he uses a future word. When he comes in his glory and in his fathers and the holy angels. So he just moved us from present benefits and, and loss of your soul to future God ashamed of you in the future. So let's go back to that drawing. When you accept Jesus as a Christian, you're never going to stand before the great white throne judgment. Jesus was judged on your behalf. You're no longer headed in that direction. You're still going to die, but you're not going to end up at the great white throne judgment. Instead, you retract your life based on the righteousness of God, and you're now going to stand before God fully getting into heaven, confident based on his righteousness you're heading in. But there's two fires in heaven. One fire Christians go through. And that fire is mentioned in Peter, that it burns up everything you did that wasn't motivated by grace and a response to the gospel. All the serving, all the giving, all the times you compromised or swallowed your pride in your marriage, all the times you pursued a a prodigal son or bit your tongue when you wanted to speak. God's going to burn up all of your works and what remains, he's going to say, I saw how you denied yourself. I saw how you took up your cross daily. And after he burns up all the things done as self-centered motivation, he's going to reward you incredible crowns and incredible rewards. And if as a Christian you don't live as a disciple and you are ashamed of Jesus, almost everything's going to be burned up. You're going to end up getting into the kingdom by the skin of your teeth, as the Bible says, not hearing the words that everyone Christian needs and wants to hear in this moment. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of my lack of stewarding the gospel in my own soul. And that's not guilt and shame. That means go back to what he's done and say, what would it look like if I really lived out this vision of 100% forgiven, 100% righteous version of myself that he sees me to be? And then you start looking at your life and say, I need to live a life of sacrifice and denying myself and taking my cross because I want to stand before God with crowns and rewards. And the greater the sacrifice, the greater the sweetness. It's not sweet to deny yourself. It's that sacrifice. It's not sweet to take up a cross. That's sacrifice. Certainly not sweet to take it up daily. But when you sacrifice great, the sweetness of standing before him and having him reward you for your works and for your, your pursuit of him and incorporation of it, there is nothing sweeter. I don't know if you saw the Olympics in 2016. There was an incredible moment with Katie Ledecky. Fastest woman in the world. She had the world record. She plunges into the water to swim the 800 meter. At 100 meters out, she's one body length ahead of all the other world record holders behind her. At 300 meters, she's five body lengths in front of the, the best in the world. She's coming in that last 100 meters... She hits the wall, breaks her own record. They take a photograph, long shot of the pool. Nobody else is in the entire pool shot. Second place comes in an 800 meter, 11 seconds behind her. She comes up out of the water. She says, last 19 years of my life, I have sacrificed for this. 
the time I gave up, the friendships I gave up, the things I could have done. And asked her to step up on the podium. And they put that gold medal around her neck. And the smile on her face as she held that gold medal up to her cheek. Her, her teammates said that she's not only competitive in the pool, but she is a great celebrator of all of them helping to do their best. Just a kind teammate. And she began to weep as the national anthem was played. And she's weeping in the moment of the medals and the glory and the sacrifice. And and, and you and I are watching it on TV and we're like, huh, that's kind of nice. And we can appreciate it. That was impressive. But we didn't sacrifice. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the sweetness. So Jesus says to you, live extravagantly for others. Suffer joyfully in this life. Give generously to things that are not yourself. Live denying yourself so that others can be prioritized. And in that sacrifice and in those decisions, in your calendar, in your wallet, in your life, in your pride, when you put Jesus first, it will be hard and it will be difficult and it will be daily. But oh, on that day, when your heavenly father takes that medal and that crown and puts it around your neck, you will not say to yourself, oh, I wish I had sacrificed less. You will look into the eyes of your heavenly father as he locks eyes with you. And there'll be nothing sweeter than hearing the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your challenge. And thank you for the power of the gospel to grow us, to energize us, and to make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. We'll see you all next week.